want you to think back to your favorite piece of clothing when you were 18. Was it a t-shirt? A pair of shoes? Maybe a coat? Now, we can all be as comprehensively cool as the Fonz from Happy Days. So in reality, you probably wore some stuff that was cool and some stuff that was not cool. I talk about one of these items in the episode. Thankfully, my wife loves me and kept me from embarrassing myself by wearing it in public again. Strategic decisions often play out in a similar way. Some choices you make were prescient and will pay off year after year. Others more like fads in retrospect, and you sunset them as quietly as you can. Hi, I'm your host, Zach Garver. And you're listening to Thinking Outside the Vault, a podcast for community banks and credit unions who think consumers deserve better than a mega bank sized dose of banking as usual. Today, my guest is Josh Bailey, an executive strategist for Casasa, and we're having a retrospective on the strategic recommendations we made for 2019. Our source material is a blog post that we published in November of 2018. I'll post a link in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. Back then, the campfire was burning in California. Midterm elections had just concluded, and the Fed was raising interest rates. Let's dive in. I think we can pretty much jump into this. Uh, Josh Bailey, executive strategist, thanks for joining our Thinking Outside the Vault podcast. I'd love to start just by having you tell uh, listeners a little bit about what you do here at Casasa. Absolutely, Zach. Thanks for having me on the show today. I'm glad to be here. And executive strategist, the title doesn't really tell you very much. So uh, we are part of the sales team here at Casasa. And really what executive strategists do is support the reps that we have out in the field in two main ways. The first is financial modeling for our products and what they could do for a partner. And then the second is product demonstration. So less financial and more just demonstration of how our products look and feel, how they work and how they benefit our, our partners. Okay. So you probably, I mean, you have to keep a pretty good, uh, you probably have to have a pretty good sense of how market conditions and and various things are going to affect a bank's strategy and, and how they might be making their decisions then about products or technologies. It definitely helps because most, of the CEOs, CFOs we talk to are, you know, they're concerned and at a minimum, at least they're aware of what's going on in the market. In the back of their mind, they're thinking about, you know, how can they improve their position in the market, um, how, how they can partner with other vendors. We're not the only vendor out there who can perhaps help them uh, differentiate in some way or improve or make things more efficient in some way. Cool. Well, so today we're going to be going back to a blog post from 2018 uh, about strategic planning and uh, pretty much about this time, um, November 13th or something like that. I'll put the link to the uh, blog in the show notes for people to read if they want. But we were looking forward uh, to 2019 and trying to figure out what exactly was going to be an important focus as institutions were you know, putting together their strategic plans. It's kind of a, I don't know, throwback Thursday sort of a day um, for us. Nice. And in, in that spirit, I was thinking about, as, as I've been processing this podcast ahead of time and, you know, prepping things, I was thinking about 
The other day, I, I went through an old drawer of mine and I, I pulled out this watch <laughs> that when I bought it, it was super cool. It was about 10 years ago or not quite 10 years ago, probably a little bit more than 10 years ago, but I wore it for a while. I thought it was a pretty great watch. Uh, the battery died, threw it in a drawer, didn't pull it out. Um, and then I looked at it and I was like, I wonder if this is still a cool watch. I, sh I should probably get the battery replaced on this. <laughs> and I showed it to my wife and she was like, no, no, you can't wear that watch. That's, that's not, not going to okay. work. <laughs> that's not going to work. Uh, so it's funny how retrospective, you know, like as something that was cool once upon a time or that seemed relevant once upon a time, uh, you know, things, I mean, fashion changes, of course, but uh, even when we're looking at the economy or other things like that, it's amazing how a, a shift that you, you couldn't see ahead of time, you know, might change how something looks. So today we're just going to have a conversation about some of these things that we that we highlighted in the blog post and see how they played out in 2019 and, and maybe, you know, talk a little bit about 2020. But for the most part, just sort of this is kind of an opportunity to, to analyze these recommendations and, and see, you know, what was good and, and what didn't work so well. Um, so with that, let's let's dive into that. Actually, you know what? Before we do that, I'm curious if you have anything like that that you know, ten years ago, you thought was really cool, and then like you look back on it now and you think, oh, I, I couldn't do that either. I couldn't do that today, or I, I maybe I can't even believe that I did that ten years ago. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. You know, you're not alone when it comes to the fashion thing. As you were talking about that, um, I, I, I agree with you because you know. I might think that my fashion sense is spot on, but my wife has a totally different opinion. So certainly when it comes to fashion, uh, you know, things change pretty quickly and, uh, absolutely with other, other products and services, you know, I'm, I, I'll hang, I'll give you an example. I'll, I like to hang on to, uh, personal laptops. Usually I have one from work. So, uh, you know, whatever personal laptop I have is, is not maybe the main one that I use, but, uh, the last time I bought a laptop was in 2014, and I don't I don't think I had bought one for at least 10 years before that, and so it was just super old. In fact, you couldn't even boot boot it up. Basically, it's just a really old Dell, and they make the okay. product. But um, same thing <laughs> yeah. now. Like that one that I bought back in 14 is super old now and super slow and outdated, and so uh, certainly you know fashion trends obviously they change, technology changes even even at a faster pace and, um, you know, laptops, great example. Uh, just, they, they get outdated pretty quickly. Yeah. It's amazing how awesome a laptop, a new laptop can feel, uh, when you get it. And then, you know, a few years go by and you're like, man, this thing's a piece of junk, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like it just, what was, what was amazing and, and shiny is, is no longer. Well, it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, how you perceive some of these things that we were talking about in 2018 that we thought were going to matter a whole heck of a lot uh, for 2019. So let's start with the first one, uh, deposit flight. Um, we kind of seem to think that there was going to be, you know, as um, institutions, community financial institutions are repricing their deposits <clears throat> to kind of follow along with the Fed, that uh, we were going to see deposits move to some of the most competitive you know, deposit vehicles, shall we say. Um, I'm curious what, you know, from your perspective, how you saw that play out. Yeah. You know, this year obviously has been one of change in terms of what's happening in the market from, at least from a rates perspective, both, uh, both the Fed and also what, you know, banks 
banks and credit unions are offering even their account holders. And that's from small institutions to large institutions. But definitely, it's been a year of fluctuation. The rates have gone both up and down um, in mm-hmm. this year. And so uh, there is, at least in the conversations we're having with you know, forward-leaning CEOs and CFOs out in the field, they're definitely thinking about how do we how do we compete in an environment that you know over the past four or five months or so looks quite a bit different than the beginning of the year and what the outlook was at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just over the summer, we were talking about how Marcus and Ally were really trying to push you know, promote some high rates in their savings vehicles, um, you know, and then then the rate cut hit. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what's this look like now? Um, mm-hmm. So it is interesting to see how, I mean, it seems like that was our recommendation that the plot deposit flight would be important. Yeah, it mostly applied. And then, you know, the, obviously big, big factor change, the Fed changes things, and then the market's going to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at some of the rates that are out there today, uh, you know, I think earlier this year, you could have gotten two and a quarter, maybe even a little bit more, 2.3 um, at some, you know, some of the mega banks like um, PNC, Marcus, uh, you know, an arm of Goldman Sachs. And even today, you know, that was in the rising rate environment where things were heating up. Um, but even now you can still find 1.8, 1.92% um, in some cases and the Fed obviously has reduced rates. And so uh, I don't know that there is a direct correlation between an increase or a decrease from the Fed and a uh, basis point for basis point, if you will, increase or decrease from from those institutions. There might be lots of reasons for that, but you can still get a competitive rate today, even though there have been a couple cuts and there might even be another cut. Yeah, I think the thing that the question that comes to my mind with something like this, you know, looking at a, a major variable that nobody really has any control over is, you know, what? Could community financial institutions do to lessen their sensitivity to the Fed funds rate, or or is that just a reality of life and and there's nothing you can do about it? Yeah, great question. Uh, absolutely, there are lots of things that they can do about it. And the first, just being, uh, they offer great great customer service. You know, consumers don't make decisions based on rate alone, and that's. Uh, verified by the fact that a lot of community financial institutions have free checking accounts with thousands of account holders in those products. If consumers made decisions based on rate alone, everybody would be with Ally, Marcus, PNC, the mega banks. Um, but they don't make a decision based only on rate. Um, and it's, you know, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of folks out there with with no rate in their checking account today. Uh, so the first thing they can do, I think, is offer great customer service, which most of our partners, in fact, most community financial institutions, banks and credit unions alike, really crush it when it comes to serving their customers or their members well. Uh, but then, of course, the other thing they can do is offer products that are attractive with a great rate. Um, and based on behaviors that are in checking accounts, those rates are often offset by income or expense savings to the bank or credit union uh, in a way that allows you to promote something that's better than what you can get with a mega bank while also being beneficial to the institution at the same time. Cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's jump into the next one here. So we thought that increased cost of funds was going to be a big deal. 
Um, I mean, and this feels like a, an extension almost of this deposit flight issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rates were, were rising. And as far as we could tell, if the economy kept up, they were going to keep rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So cost of funds, I think, is a concern for a lot of community financial institutions. Um, give you some some examples that, you know, with partners that we're targeting um, in our conversations, a lot of folks, particularly the ones where their loan to deposit ratio has been climbing into the, you know, 90 percent range or at or near or even above 100 percent range. Those CEOs and CFOs are thinking a lot about not only how can we keep up with this loan demand that they have, but can we fund it? In a way that's more affordable than, say, going to uh, going to the Fed to borrow, or even offering a two percent CD in market. So it really, a lot of it really depends on um, that loan to deposit metric. Uh, is that on the rise? If so, a lot of those institutions do see uh, an increase in their cost of funds number as well. In some cases, it doubles or triples uh, over the past few years, and wow. you know, they're willing to deal with that because loan demand is high. Um, but I think they know, most of them know in the back of their mind, it's not as sustainable or at least not as profitable as they might like for it to be if they had some other option available other than borrowing from the federal government or, you know, funding that growth with a 2% CD. Uh, obviously, there's there's a 2% cost of funds there. There's no offset to that in terms of behaviors. And so um, while some of our partners or prospective partners uh, are seeing a cost of funds increase due to that lending growth. There are also partners out there that that maybe don't have that loan demand and their cost of funds has remained low, but even even that can be a catch-22 because they might like for there to be loan growth, and they might also like to have a strategy in place for that loan growth that's more affordable than than those other funding vehicles that are close to 2% cost of funds. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's. Um, I want to take a minute to talk about this metric, right? Cost of funds, which is pretty fundamental to how banks, you know, operate and, and assess opportunity um, changes they're going to make. But so for us internally, Casasa, we talk about another metric, which is cost of deposits. Can you explain just you know, kind of briefly, when if we were to say cost of deposits, say in another pod? cast episode or something like that. What what does that mean? And how does it differ from cost of funds? Why is that important? Sure. Cost of deposits um, looks a step further than or gives a holistic view of the true cost of a deposit tool by looking not only at cost of funds, but also, which which is just the interest expense for the deposits, but we also uh, take into account the non-interest expense so the cost of sending a statement, for example, and also the non-interest income. So think about with a checking account, uh, you could have some decent and sig- significant, in some cases, non-interest income associated with things like debit card activity, uh, the interchange revenue that comes from swipes being the primary one um, that, that we look at here at Casasa. So what cost of deposits does is it gives you that holistic view of what's happening with the deposit product by not only focusing on the cost of funds piece or that interest expense, but also the other non-interest expenses and that non-interest income. And it brings you to a number that really gives a holistic view of what's happening with the deposit dollars in that particular product. Okay. And am I, am I correct in saying that 
one advantage of looking at cost of deposits is that it kind of so as you said it like gives you sort of a truer sense of of what an account might actually be generating but in terms of talking about you know resiliency or, or hedging against you know interest rates like something like non-interest income like that doesn't have anything to do with the interest rate that's you know you're gonna see growth there or you know maybe some you know contractions if the economy were contract a little bit you might see people spending a little bit less mm -hmm. using their debit card a little bit less but fundamentally that's more about consumer behavior than it, than it is about policy or or something like that yeah great point you you have the right idea completely basically every time a consumer uses their their card, their debit card, in the case of a Casasa account, uh, there's income there for the institution that has issued that card. And so you have the right idea in the sense that if the economy were to expand or contract, perhaps consumers would be swiping that card more or less. Uh, but at the end of the day, every time they swipe the card, that represents some revenue to the financial institution that has, that has issued that card. Uh, and so one of the great things about a Casasa account is we're incentivizing the account holder to use that debit card um, and not just use it periodically, but use it as their primary means um, of, of doing their life, uh, the business of everyday life, if you will. And so what we see is that they use it um, a lot more than average because they're going to get rewarded for using that just as a means of, of conducting the business of their ordinary lives. And so it's a great way to hedge, if you will, against the fact that the market may do a lot of different things. Uh, but consumers have to buy groceries and gas and, uh, yeah. and things of that nature and might as well use your card and drive some revenue uh, to your institution uh, in, the, in that process. And one of, the, one of the great things about that is it has translated into a really a fantastic cost of deposits. If you think about that as the metric by which you evaluate a deposit product, you know, our company, uh, we launched back in 2003. Uh, so we only have data back to that point in time, but you can track the Fed funds rate, the average CD rates and things of that nature over time. And you can also track what, what our clients have promoted in terms of, uh, let's say it's a 3% checking account or something like that. And when you track that over time, the promoted rate has been quite a bit higher than CDs, while the cost of funds has been on par with or less than CDs, and that cost of deposits number has been has been even lower, in some cases approaching zero or even going uh, to a negative number. In other words, they're making money on deposits before they lend it out. But it's been it's interesting to see that over time, the cost of deposits metric has proved one uh, that's that's great for financial institutions with Casasa because they've been able to consistently promote something that's better. Uh, than what consumers could get from a mega bank. Cost of funds is quite a bit lower and that cost of deposits number, largely driven by things like non-interest income from those debit card swipes, has been significantly lower and in some cases even profitable before they lend it out. So it's really a fantastic metric that has proven reliable through a lot of different um, you know, economic times. Well, it sounds like you know whether you have CASAS or not, like the idea of cost of deposits could be pretty beneficial because it it is that more holistic way to look at how a given account is performing and and what you're really generating with it. You know, I mean, I, I you know I, I'm not I'm not a data wonk here, so I'm not going to be able to say like, oh yeah, and like I you know 
looking at these other, you know, non-reward accounts, we can, you know, see some big discrepancies or whatever. But it does seem like the sort of thing, like if you're used to evaluating accounts based on this pure cost of funds, that it might be a worthy experiment to just, you know, take take some and, and look at it from a cost of deposit standpoint, examine some of those other things and, and see if you really have the performance that you maybe thought that you did. Um, so um, just something for, for listeners to think about there. Okay, well, so let's let's jump into the next one here. Um, we've been talking a lot about rates and deposits and things. Let's get into some of the uh, more intangibles. Let's talk about marketing psychology. <laughs> so for us, uh, we thought modern marketing was going to be really important. Uh, we thought this was going to be a, a year where multi-channel marketing really played a big um, part. And that... You know, FIs, you know, when I say FI, I mean financial institution. Uh, we got a lot of acronyms here at Casasa, and sometimes I find myself using them without even thinking about it. Uh, Lots of acronyms. So, uh, community financial institutions uh, needing to expand their marketing operations, looking for ways to reach consumers in new channels, um, and that that would play a big part in, in whatever account growth they would experience. So, I mean, how did you see that playing out for people? Uh, both... Um, if you could kind of talk a little bit about how maybe you saw that playing out for prospective clients, you know, people who were evaluating us on our, you know, marketing capabilities and then how, you know, existing clients, you saw them maybe utilizing this multi-channel opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the prospective partners that we talk to um, on our team, you know, they're thinking about things just like this, marketing sophistication. Hey, Today, I have newspaper ads and billboard, you know, billboards up in our area, um, maybe radio or things of that nature. I know I need to have something for the digital space or social media, but don't exactly know how to do that. If you're in that camp, you're in good company. A lot of community financial institutions are are in the same place. Um, and, you know, because also not the only place where you could get support in that area, but it has become extremely important to have uh, really a, a revamped digital presence, both in terms of marketing uh, and also then where does someone go when they either hear about you or find you online, they go to your website, really important to have a dynamic experience there as well. And so I see it being, you know, a trend that everyone, if they're not doing it, they're thinking about how could they do it? They know that they need to do it, want to do it. And maybe in every case, they don't exactly know how to do it. But a lot of our conversations do focus on marketing and some of the some of the strategies whereby you can you can target the right type of consumer and then also, uh, you know, attract them by using multi-channel marketing tactics. Hey, we're going to take a short break to tell you about something that we've been working on and we are pretty excited about. I've got a three year old son and he loves Cheerios. Much to his dismay, we keep the box of Cheerios on the top of the refrigerator, safely out of his reach. Actually, we keep cookies and other treats on top of the fridge as well. It drives him crazy. You can see that smorgasbord of yummy snacks, but he can't get to them. In the business world, it often feels like everybody is keeping their best information out of your reach. On the top of the fridge, so to speak or behind an info capture page. Well, here at Kasasa, we're making a change. We're putting some of our best intelligence and analysis within reach for any community financial institution, whether you partner with us or not. 
It's called the Kasasa Exchange. And every couple of months, we release a new trove of infographics, blog posts, podcasts, and videos. It's all free, and we won't ask for your email, phone number, home address, or kindergarten teacher's name. Anyway, point being, it's all right there in the open for you to enjoy. Check it out today at www.kasasa.com backslash exchange and look for a link in the show notes. Yeah, and, and marketing now, we're talking a little bit more of my wheelhouse, uh, my, my area of expertise. And, and for me, one of the things that I, I, I think about and that I, I want to remind people, um, it's, it's easy to get a little bit caught up in the like, latest technology or, um, you know, social media advertising this, or, you know, what's the next platform where people are going. Uh, and the thing that I always try to like refocus people on is this idea of where, where are your customers? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a matter of like over, especially for, you know, small, smaller community financial institutions who are focusing on a, on a really specific demographic or a geography. Right. Um, it's not so much about where everybody else is. It's about where the people you're trying to reach are mm -hmm. and, and that might not be on you know a social media platform um mm -hmm. or it might be somewhat like so my, my my point here is that like it i think a beneficial step to take is to look at who you're trying to reach and what types of media those people engage with so if, mm -hmm. if you're not sure who you're trying to reach that's like some worthy research you might do <laughs> mm -hmm. um if you're not sure if you if you do know who you're trying to reach but you're not sure what types of media they consume or where they're mm -hmm. spending their time, you know, let's say about devices, right? iPhone mm -hmm. or, you know, their smartphone or tablets or computers. Um, that's another worthy thing. You want to find out where these people are spending their time. And so that when you deploy your marketing dollars, you are, you're putting it in front of people, the right people in the right places. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's less about trends and more about just knowing who it is you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, I'm going to, and take a little bit of a, a step here and just say, like, I think we were right that this is an important item for 2019. And uh, in the same token, it's it's going to be just as important in 2020, really. Like this is, you know, mark, marketing sophistication is a steamroller. It's just going to technology is going to keep driving it forward. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not really a benefit to waiting for some future date. Um, mm -hmm. You got to start making some steps here if you, if yeah. you want to you know, continue to be successful. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example. I uh, have some relatives. This is just from my personal experience. I have some relatives that work in retail clothing. Um, so not technology, uh, not the technology industry, but I have shopped their stores. I'll give you an example here for clothing. And because I've done that, I could be looking at the news or maybe sports, streaming music, or even searching for something on Google. And I, I cannot get away from, you know, the Arcteryx jacket or <laughs> mountain khaki shirts, um, ads that are out there. Uh, and I, in fact, I can't wait to buy them because I see them everywhere I go. And, and that particular technology in and of itself is not, is not new or earth shattering. They're just, they're tapping into the fact that I have expressed some interest and they know where I'm you know, where I'm shopping or where I'm consuming information online and they place those ads there. And that, you know, it's not different really for um, banking products and services. Uh, in fact, the strategy we employ is 
you can even have some intelligence about where is the potential in your area for growth as an institution from a deposit dollar standpoint. And then not just where is that potential, but who lives there? How do they like to consume media? And so they don't even have to shop your bank or credit union or the products that you have. You can, you can place ads where they already like to consume media. And you can do so with confidence, knowing that um, they're, they're in your target demographic. Uh, they are shopping or doing business of life online or even just consuming information and media online. And you can place an ad there and have confidence uh, that they will see that and it will resonate with them and that they'll open that. And you didn't even have to, they didn't even have to know who you were. Like I went to those clothing retailer websites. You don't even have to wait for that. You can place ads in a strategic time, strategic place, um, and do so over and over again. So that, that actually increases the likelihood that they'll take an action um, and, you know, find you, find that great product, a uh, product, and then do banking with you. So there's a, a lot of great intelligence and strategies out there for, for being proactive and getting in front of consumers at, in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I think that's a great point. All right, we're we're closing in here on the end. We've got two more topics that we thought were going to really matter in 2019 and that community financial institutions needed to pay attention to in their strategic planning. Uh, the next one is customer retention. Um, and just so, you know, I think it's worth saying, you know, no matter how many customers you can get in your door, if they're walking out the back door, that's not good. <laughs> so, and, you know, I, and this is another one that even just right off the bat, I wonder, like, is this so much about something that happened in 2019 or about like a base level? Like you need to be thinking about customer retention mm -hmm. uh, at your institution. Um, is that something that you saw or that you experienced, um, you know, pr prospective partners talking about or, or thinking about? Absolutely. You know, it's um, a very important thing because as you said, it doesn't matter how many people you bring in, whether that's a lot or not. Uh, if you can't keep the back door closed, um, then your attrition is basically burning through all that new, new account growth or new deposit growth. Uh, that you have. And so ab absolutely, uh, that's at the forefront of most CEO, CFO, and certainly uh, chief marketing officers' minds out there. Um, how can we attract folks? How can we engage those account holders? And then how can we retain them as well? And certainly that's, we've developed strategies for that here at Casasa, but it's on everyone's mind. And I think that's where, you know, all these pieces start to come together. If you have great customer service or, or, you know, member service in the case of a credit union, which all of our partners certainly do. And probably everyone listening to this podcast has fantastic customer or member service. You know, if you promote great products where uh, that account holder is going to get rewarded with more money than they would get from a mega bank, those products are a key piece of this. Uh, certainly the promotion is a key piece of it. But if you think about that reward, uh, that's part of what keeps them engaged. I want to stay with uh, this local bank or credit union so that I can get that great rate of return. Uh, I want to use my debit card so that I can get that great rate of return. And where, where else am I going to go? If you're offering me 3%, uh, I could not care less about Ally, Marcus, PNC, or Citibank's 2%. Why, why would I want to go there when I'm getting a better, a better rate of return with you? Um, and also, 
um, you know, by the way, you have great customer service. So I think that's where a lot of these pieces start to come together. But absolutely, the back door is something that is at the forefront of everyone's mind, whether they partner with Casasa or not. It's something that, you know, attrition is something that you need to think about and you want to manage well. What do you think the, I mean, what do you, for people who are, who actually do decide to switch accounts, they finally get over whatever that, I mean, you know, for me, it's it, it, this foreboding sense of doom, like, oh mm-hmm. man, I do not want to change banks. <laughs> this is a terrible process. This is the last thing I want to do. But if I finally get to that point where I'm just either so fed up or whatever, what do you think is the biggest thing that drives uh, account holders out of a given account and into another one? Like mm-hmm. what makes them? You mean from just from one product to another or perhaps from one institution to another or both? Um, probably from one institution to another, because that's I mean, I think, you know, a, a concern certainly is for people is their competition, whether it's mm-hmm. megabanks, techs or, or other, you know, nearby institutions who are, you know, everybody's clamoring for mm-hmm. for the consumer. Um but what actually compels that consumer to mm-hmm. leave one institution and move to another, I think, is probably worth yeah. thinking about. I think, I think it's two things. And I'll use a, a case study here as, as an example. And I, I, we or just earlier this year partnered with um, a, a relatively small institution um, in a rural area of Oklahoma. And there was a, a regional bank in that area uh, that had seen... So I had some success um, with with opening new accounts. However, a lot of those those customers in this case, you know, they did, just didn't feel like they were getting the great service that they would have maybe otherwise had at a at a smaller bank or credit union. But you know, the, this larger institution, you know, they have an they have an okay product. They have a good website. They have a big presence. A lot of locations, um, but this. This smaller institution that we ended up partnering with, you know, they knew that they were crushing it in terms of customer service. Like, no way this larger institution could provide, uh, you know, the personalized local uh, service and attention that they could. Uh, but they just didn't have, you know, an, a compelling product that gave those customers a reason to switch. And so that was a big part of their thinking in partnering with Casasa uh, was they, they knew they already had better service, uh, but they needed that product as well. So that really rounds out that whole conversation when you think about why would I want to switch? And we know from, you know, from studies that have been done, the average consumer out there would prefer to bank locally. Uh, but there's a perception gap between the products and the products that I can get from a regional or a mega bank uh, as opposed to those from you know, from a local institution. And so it's just, it's, the, it's twofold there, both customer service, if you will, and also great products. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing, at least in a lot of the conversations that we're having. So the, the product is what you, is how you get somebody in the door per se. And then the mm-hmm. quality of that customer experience mm-hmm. is what keeps them around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, there is research out there that suggests a lot of a lot of people that make the switch to the local institution, they actually knew about the institution uh, a long time before they made the switch. They just never, never actually pulled the trigger, so to speak, you know, and actually took that step, uh, which suggests they already knew who you were and they knew you had great service. But it wasn't until you launched this great product that puts money in their pocket that they were able or that they actually took that action 
uh, to make the change. So the product is certainly a key piece of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, just speaking from personal experience, I'd had a, a Wells Fargo account for a long time, you know, before I ever started, before I ever moved, you know, came to Casasa to work, I had this Wells Fargo account. It was our primary account. And, and the thing that finally pushed me into getting a, an account with a community financial institution was uh, we had been traveling and I needed to pull out cash from an ATM. And I got mm-hmm. that that $5 dig, right? $2 on one side and three on the other. And I was just like, ah, I cannot believe that here. I, like, I know I could be in an account where this ATM transaction would not cost me anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but here I am still using Wells Fargo, still paying to get my own money out. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I, I actually kept that receipt is like remind myself like this is the reason for you to change banks because <laughs> this is stupid absolutely um so that's i mean you know ho- hopefully people you know it's it's whatever the reason is you know that they're they're attracted to those benefits mm-hmm. all right well coming in now we got the last one which was fintech and innovation um we thought that this was going to really matter a lot um and I think there's, you know, I think it did, but I think there's more to that story than just, I mean, I don't feel like saying fintech and innovation really communicates the complexity or the, the real importance of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, there's absolutely a lot of innovation out there. I mean, dozens of billions of dollars being invested uh, for thousands of different companies that are making every in developing new ways or faster ways of doing every product and service that every bank and credit union offers, whether you're a mega bank or or a community bank or credit union, it, it doesn't really matter. There is a really a, a lot of investment and in a lot of companies with, with really unique and fast products and services out there. Uh, so there's a lot of activity out there. Certainly the market is moving in a direction of... Um, of just new ways of doing things. You watch television, you know, Rocket Mortgage is a great example. Uh, just a just a fast way to apply for a mortgage. And there are hundreds of other examples like that. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of investment in the space. If it's not on, you know, a community bank or credit union's radar today, um, it certainly should be. And, you know, it, if if it's not today, it will be. I think the only question is, you know, are you are you poised to deal with that? Um, before it's too late, um, there, there's just a lot, a lot out there. And, and in fact, most of the, actually, not only everyone we partner with, but even the folks that don't partner with us, they have likely purchased some new product or service that maybe didn't exist five or 10 years ago, but does exist today and helps them do some piece of their business. And there's just a lot more out there. Yeah. I want to touch a little bit on an episode we did recently with, with John Walsh about data. And he was just emphasizing how critically important it is for community financial institutions, banks and credit unions to look at their their data that, that they house internally um, and, and wrap their arms around it, map it, get a sense for it. If you need to clean it up, clean it up and get it into a shape that you can use it to do other things. Because, you know, let, let's say just hypothetically, you're a small institution your, you know, your back office infrastructure is kind of a mess because you got bolted on this system and that system and you're working with your core and maybe they're not the easiest to work with. Um, and then you do see this 
fancy new fintech company and you're like, man, that service or that product would be perfect for our people. We want to use them. Um, and, and you open up that conversation, but it turns out that, you know, there's just some really big obstacles because the, the health of your own data and the, the cleanliness, is it accessible? Can you mm-hmm. hook into an API, for instance? Um, all those questions. So like, that's, I think the point here is that there is more so than just trying to find the newest, hottest thing. It's like, mm-hmm. are you prepared from mm-hmm. an internal standpoint to take advantage of opportunities that could come your way? And if, mm-hmm. and that preparedness starts with your, your internal data systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's be nice to have the uh, shiniest new thing that's out there, but it's also important you know, maybe less exciting to think about those platforms that are foundational uh, to just doing everyday business. But it's certainly important uh, to ensure that those are optimized so that you can make nimble decisions when the time is right, both in terms of uh, accessing, understanding and making decisions with the data that you have. Um, those are foundational to being able to respond to any 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 market environment or economic condition. And they're certainly more important, um, I think, than those shiny new things that might be offered out there. Um, because what good would that that new innovative product be if, as you mentioned, as an example, you can't we have a hard time even accessing data from from our core or some other platform that's really foundational to the way that we do business. So uh, certainly step one uh, is making sure that those platforms and processes are in place, give you the opportunity to be nimble in terms of managing your existing business, but then also thinking about how might we expand or innovate or offer new and exciting things for our account holders. Yeah. I mean, the way that I, well, the way that I think about this a little bit is right. It's, we know there's this technology, technological innovation that's happening, but we're not, we're not really talking about supercomputers and rocket ships here. We're talking about, if, you know, to, to take this metaphor, we're talking about planting trees, like this platform mm-hmm. that can an entire ecosystem, you know, that, mm-hmm. that everything about your institution can kind of live in this fully functioning mm-hmm. organism, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's this Chinese proverb that I like. I didn't totally understand it, I confess, when I first heard it, but I think it applies to this, really. You know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And then the next best time is now. Like, mm-hmm. maybe you wish you had done something with your data five, mm-hmm. 10 years ago when mm-hmm. the thought first occurred to you. Well, there's no benefit in waiting another year or two or three because it just doesn't get easier or faster or better <laughs> until right. you take that step. Exactly. In fact, um, I believe it was um, Jim Collins in the book that he wrote, Good to Great. One of the things that great organizations do is they, uh, you know, they think about technology. And as you said, you can't go back in time um, and make a decision 10 years ago, but you can make a decision today. And certainly uh, there's, there's a handful of things that great organizations do, but one important one is they think about technology and as, you know, as uh, it may not be that exciting to think about things like, can I access my data or can we do this process more efficiently? Uh, but those things are, are very important. If you think about 
you know, the average institution that we talk to or partner with, they don't have billion dollar budgets um, to manage projects internally or revamp technologies internally like a Wells Fargo or Bank of America might have. And so, you know, yeah, I'm working with the vendor partners that you have and investing in technologies that allow you to do your business, um, you know, really as efficiently and effectively as possible today are, are really, really very important if you think about being poised for for taking advantage of growth opportunities or or new and innovative opportunities in the future. Yeah, for sure. And that's a great point. Well, Josh, I so appreciate your time. Uh, and, and we got to, I mean, we got to more stuff than I thought that we would, honestly. Awesome. Um, so this has been a great conversation. Um, I think it's going to be really valuable for our listeners. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of in the, in the sense of a wrap up, I'm curious if there's anything, maybe your pick your top thing for 2020 that you feel like uh, would either is, is underrated, like people are not paying mm -hmm. attention to it, or that you just think mm -hmm. is so like fundamentally important that people should not miss it. Yeah. Well, the, the trend over the past few decades has been one of uh, market share uh, shifting away from community financial institutions to uh, the larger regional and mega banks. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is because consumers are moving away from um, banking locally to banking with those larger institutions. And so I think, um, you know, the, the most important thing to think about in uh, 2020 and beyond really would be, you know, regardless of the rate environment or the economic condition, uh, if you want to grow or even if you don't want to grow your assets, um, you, you know, everyone out there is interested in attracting, engaging, and retaining account holders. And if you can move the needle in any one of those pieces, that's great. But if you can do it in all three, that's really going to be a powerful way uh, to set a foundation of, of account holders that are both, um, you know, both engaged and also profitable for institutions. It's a great way uh, to not only stay relevant, but also um, remain profitable so that you can serve those account holders and, and um, very well in the future. So I think just focusing on on consumers and uh, you, you already have great, great service for them. But thinking about are there products that you can that you can either tweak or change or launch uh, that help you attract, engage and retain. That's going to be a powerful thing, regardless of the economic environment going forward. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Well, exactly. thank you, Josh. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, you know, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll have you here on another episode. We'll, we'll uh, talk through some other topics. I think that'd be great. So I exactly. uh, appreciate your time, and we'll uh, call that a wrap. Thank you. Well, 2019 is coming rapidly to a close. How did these topics fit into your year? Which issues are you looking at for 2020? With more than 700 clients and nearly 15 years of experience, we obviously have some strong ideas about what community banks and credit unions should do to stay competitive. But at the end of the day, you are the only one who can decide what's right for your strategy. And we'll be here to help, offering fresh ideas, rock-solid analysis, and a belief that what's good for the consumer can also be good for your bottom line. Thank you for listening to Thinking Outside the Vault a podcast produced and distributed by Kasasa. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave us a review. 
This helps other listeners to discover us. You can also send your comments and feedback to social at casasa.com.